Can you hear me now? You can hear me now. Okay, I, I just wrote this up here, this phrase, the kingdom of God, because that's, that's really the theme that we're, that we're contemplating as we're reading this book together, God's big picture, as we're making our way uh, through the book and, and really making our way uh, through the Bible, and, and honestly, um, you know, we've, we've spent a good bit of time in the first three chapters, kind of began to move away from chapter three of Genesis uh, into the rest of the Bible, but, but beginning tonight, we, we really kind of are in a bit of a sprint. We're gonna, we're gonna start moving pretty quickly through, um, through the scriptures, looking at some significant passages, but um, continuing to, to sort of trace this thread, trace this idea of the kingdom of God as it unfolds across uh, the whole of scripture. And what we've seen so far is in Genesis 1 and 2, you have a pattern of the kingdom. Um, and and help, help me, uh, because I, my memory's bad, help me remember these five motifs that tie this this story of the kingdom together. What are the five motifs that we looked at uh, all those weeks ago? Five sort of recurring themes that that reinforce this main theme of the unfolding story of the kingdom of God. Land, okay, or a place, a ruler, or a king, a people, right, descendants, right, a, a people. So you have... You have a king or a ruler, you have a place, you have people. Okay, blessing, prosperity. Okay, and a rule or law. You have a ruler who gives his law word, which he does in in Genesis 2. Um, He gives specific uh, commands to the man, a, a command to enjoy everything that there is in the garden but there's one prohibition, one restriction, and that is to, to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have a ruler and his rule, or his law word, uh, and you have uh, a place, the garden, and then you have, of course, people in that garden who are blessed by God so that they might be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, which is to steward it, which is to, which is to it, it caused the, the potential that there is in the earth to come to, to full flower. So ruler, rule, people, place, and prosperity. God's, uh, God's promise, uh, which you see um, expressed in Genesis 1 and 2, God's promise that in his world, life will be truly life. Uh, life will be filled with his blessing. And then in Genesis uh, chapter 3, the kingdom perishes. Because of the rebellion of, uh, of the man uh, and the woman, uh, because they are drawn away from faithfulness to God, drawn away from loyalty to God, uh, believing the lie, questioning whether God is really good. That's, the, that's kind of the nature of, of the, uh, the accusation that, that, uh, that Satan brings, the serpent brings. Uh, has God really said Gosh, isn't isn't God kind of uh, kind of niggardly to withhold something from you, right? Um, and the people, the man and the woman, believe the lie, and the result of that is that the kingdom perishes. And what begins to characterize all of life from that point forward now is death. Everything is broken. Everything is broken. Every relationship is broken. 
But then we began to look at, at the kingdom promised. And I think I suggested to you last week that if, that if Vaughn Roberts had asked me my opinion, I would have had another chapter in the book. And that chapter would have focused on Genesis 3.15 and the second half of Genesis 3.15 and the specific promise of the seed of the woman who would come as a serpent crusher, who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And we, and we sort of trace that through some significant passages uh, in the Old Testament and then into the New Testament. And I read that passage for you last week from Sinclair Ferguson's uh, book on the Holy Spirit in which he looks at the temptation of Jesus uh, in the wilderness in the Gospel of Matthew and sees uh, sees Jesus at his baptism having been commissioned by God, clothed with the Spirit of God, and sent into the wilderness to make an assault on the kingdom of darkness, to begin the assault on the kingdom of darkness. Uh, he sees it as a very uh, militaristic thing, if you will, the temptation, uh, where Jesus rightly interprets the Word of God, rightly applies the Word of God, and in the face of that assault, the last, um, the last line in that narrative of the temptation is, the, is that Satan fled, Satan left. And so in the initial assault, Jesus, in the wilderness, um, in, the, the, um, in the temptation, um, begins the work of overthrowing uh, all of the, the havoc and wreckage that has resulted from uh, the work of the serpent in seducing the man and the woman, rebellion and sin, uh, and the promise begins to be fulfilled. And, and now we come, as, as we continue to think about this idea of the, of the kingdom promised, we come to Genesis 12, and then tonight we're going to look at what Vaughn Roberts calls the kingdom in its partial uh, expression. Um, Old Testament Israel is a partial expression of of the kingdom of God in its restored uh, state or its restored condition. It's it's what I guess I would prefer to call the kingdom pictured or even repictured. If you have a pattern of the kingdom in Genesis one and two, what we begin to see as the promise to Abraham begins to be fulfilled in the life of Israel, we begin to see yet another picture of what the kingdom will look like. Uh, when it comes to its final expression, its perfected expression down at the end of history. But before we do that, there are a couple of significant things that we need to sort of stick into this timeline. Um, and so if you, if you have the notes from, um, that, we, that we actually distributed last week, um, class number four, the kingdom is conceived, the partial kingdom, um, Roman numeral one, picking up a few fragments, Okay, um, what we want to look at for a few minutes is the flood and its place in the story, and then the Tower of Babel and its place in the story. So on, on this timeline, this is the creation back here, right? Act 1. Act 2 is the fall where the kingdom perishes. Act 3 begins the story of redemption. And you'll see this is a dotted line between this line, which is the creation, and this line, which is, represents the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is where, um, where the story uh, really does begin to unfold in a, in a consecutive chronological sort of um, measurable, uh, measurable way. Before you get to the time of, of Abraham, 
we, we just really don't know how much time transpired. That's why that dotted line is there, okay? Because we don't, we don't know how much time transpired. At least, I don't think we know how much time transpired between the creation and the promise made to Abraham. But we do have these two very significant events that occurred in here someplace. One of them is the flood, and the other is the Tower of Babel. And we want to, we want to think for a couple of minutes about the significance of, of, uh, of these two significant events. The story of the flood is Genesis 6 through 9. Um, and uh, you know the story. Uh, if you look at Genesis 6, in the first few verses, we read this. Genesis 6, 1, <clears throat> excuse me. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then verse 5, and this is, this is the verse that we really want to focus on. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor or found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So from... From, from this point, the point where the kingdom perishes, uh, humankind multiplies. But as humankind multiplies, what else multiplies? What multiplies with them? Sin. Sin. And all of the horrible, ravaging effects of sin. Um, we looked... Two or three weeks ago, I don't remember when it was, as we, as we looked at Genesis 3 verse the, the, and, and the kingdom perishing, we, we kind of went on into chapter 4 um, and, and looked at a couple of passages uh, involving uh, Cain and Abel, looked at that just briefly. Um, the, the first sin, if you will, that, that is committed after the great sin and great rebellion is is fratricide. Fratricide, right? What's a fraternity? It's a brotherhood, right? So what is a fratricide? It's a, it's a killing of a brother. It's a killing of a family member. And what provoked that? Jealousy. Jealousy. 
And, and then after looking just very, very briefly, just kind of calling to mind the fact of, of uh, Cain killing Abel, we looked toward the end of that chapter, the fourth chapter, uh, at Lamech. Um, Lamech, who, 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 whose life is sort of characterized by two things. You remember what those two things were? He took two, he took two wives to himself. He had two wives, Ada and Zillah. And what does that represent? That represents, you know, polygamy, having two wives. I mean, it represents an assault on the, pa- the pattern that God established in the creation. Genesis 2, the man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's, that's the pattern that is established for marriage. And Lamech makes, makes an assault. Now, we don't know if he's the first one to engage in polygamy, if it was widespread and popular at the time. Uh, but, it's, but it's at least there in Lamech's life. And it represents a tragic departure from God's established pattern that produces all kinds of devastating consequences, probably in Lamech's life. But when you get down to the life of of Jacob and even Abraham, it causes all kinds of problems, right? I mean, that, there's a lesson to be learned in that, folks, that a departure from God's established pattern is never good. <laughs> it never works out well. And the other thing that you see in Lamech's life is, is a, new, a new kind of justice, Right? It's no longer a justice, the kind of justice in which where there is a crime, there's a punishment that fits the crime. But Lamech says, I have killed a man for wounding me. It's it's now, now it's vindictiveness. Now it's over the top. Now it's, and I think I use this illustration, it's it's schoolyard stuff, Right? Where, where one boy is picking on another boy, and when the first boy initiates something, how does, the, how does boy number two respond? Not equally. He responds with more force, right? And in those things, in the, in the fratricide of, of, uh, involving Cain and Abel, in, in this sort of retributive, vindictive, over-the-top distortion of justice, in these things, there is the seed for every kind of ethnic hostility, international hostility that has plagued the world since time immemorial, right? Well, by the time you get to Noah, and again, we don't know how long, how much time transpired. By the time you get to Noah, the judgment of God about, about all, of, all of mankind, all of humankind, is, is captured in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God acts, and he acts in judgment. But the thing that I think is important for us to remember, um, as we think about the action of God in bringing judgment upon the world, is that while on the one hand it is an act of judgment, it's also an act of preservation. It's also an act of preservation. If God had allowed history to continue one generation more, what would have been the result? 
You wouldn't. There would have been no Noah. There would have been no righteous person. Wickedness would have consumed righteousness. And if wickedness consumes righteousness, this is the key thing about this particular period in redemptive history. If wickedness consumes righteousness, what happens to the promise of Genesis 3.15? It's gone. It goes. It is down the tubes. But you see, God made a promise back here in Genesis 3.15. And the promise is that from the seed of the woman... From the seed of faith as over against the seed of the serpent, the seed of unbelief and rebellion, from the line of faith, one would emerge who would crush the head of the serpent and eradicate evil from the realm. So as God acts in judgment, he actually acts to preserve, to preserve the promise And to preserve the hope that is attached to the promise that the day will come that, that from the seed of the woman, from the line of faith, one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. What's what's really, um, I think, fascinating about about the flood account, and particularly um, in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, is, um, is the language that is used. And Roberts refers to this on page 52. If you have, uh, if you have your, your copy of the book, there's a little chart on page 52 that, that uh, shows us the similarity in language that there is between the original creation account and then the post-flood account of the restoration of creation. So you actually, um, and, and Roberts talks about this a little bit in the chapter, You actually can look at the flood as an undoing of the creation and as a return to the condition of the creation that's described in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, right? The Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep, and the earth was formless and empty, right? And darkness was over the face of the waters, The flood, in effect, undoes the creation, returns the creation to its sort of primordial, unformed state, but then the same language is used as the floodwaters abate, and as dry land appears, the same language is used of the the kind of the renewal or the restoration of the creation that was used in Genesis 1. So if you look at this, Genesis 1, you read in verse 28, God commands, commissions the man and the woman to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Verse 1 of Genesis 9, the same kind of command comes. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 28 of Genesis 1, subdue the earth, rule over it. Rule over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 2 of Genesis 9. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth. Verse 29 of Genesis 1. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth for food. Verse 3 of Genesis 9. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. 
So what you have in Genesis 9, um, after the flood waters abate, after God brings judgment upon the whole earth, um, you have um, God sort of recommissioning, recommissioning Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, recommissioning them to fulfill the role that he had originally given to Adam and Eve, to be fruitful, uh, to multiply and fill the earth. Um, he blesses them so that their work will be fruitful. Um, same sort of language. So it's a, it's a depiction of a kind of a recreation or the restoration of the creation. And then in verses 8 and following of Genesis 9, God uh, makes a covenant with Noah and with the whole of the creation. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So what is God doing? And this is, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to watch this, this theme of the covenant as it, uh, as it unfolds in this general unfolding story of the kingdom of God. It, it's, a kind of a, it's a kind of a wide angle of the funnel thing, right? We'll, we'll, see, we'll see these covenants successively sort of narrowing God's focus. And right here in Genesis 9, the covenant made is a covenant, a promise, that God makes with the whole of the creation, to preserve the whole of the creation. Now again, why does God make a promise to preserve the whole of the creation? Because he made a former promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a redeemer. So he, he, he and, and we'll see this, wherever God makes a promise like this, wherever he establishes a covenant, he also gives a sign. And the sign that he gives of this covenant is what? The rainbow. Okay? I've set my bow in the heavens. So he makes this promise, makes this covenant with the whole of the creation, people, all of humankind, um, and with every beast of the field, with the whole of the creation, with this promise it very much in view, in the background. The promise originally made in Genesis 3.15. So, it, again, it's, it, it, just as God acted in judgment, certainly acted in judgment, bringing his judgment upon a rebellious race, he was also acting to preserve. And now as he makes this covenant, he's acting Still, still yet again, to preserve, to preserve the creation so that this first promise can be fulfilled. Okay? Um, and then he gives, gives this sign of the covenant. <clears throat> Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. So, I mean, next time it rains, go down to the beach, especially if it's late in the afternoon. Pretty good chance, pretty good chance you'll see the sign of the covenant. You'll see a, 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 a visual representation of God's resolve never to bring judgment upon the earth in the way that he did in the days of Noah. Now, here's the flip side of that. In promising that God will never again bring the kind of judgment to the earth that he brought in the days of Noah, he, in effect, is promising that he will restrain evil so that evil will never proliferate to the extent that a judgment like that is warranted. God will restrain evil. It's what, uh, it's what among the other, other features to this, but it's, it's what the theologians refer to as God's common grace. It, it is a grace that extends to the whole of humankind. It's a grace that extends to the whole of the creation, in making this promise, God is promising that he's never going to allow the situation to arise again, which would warrant the kind of judgment that came in the days of Noah. Okay. Now, does that mean that evil is fully eradicated? No, of course not. And it seems that in every generation, and uh, you know, we can certainly think of instances of this um, in our own memory and in, in our own day, it seems that in every generation that while God will never allow evil to proliferate to the extent that it did in the days of Noah, when God would make a judgment about the whole of humankind that the thoughts and intentions of their hearts were only evil continually, it never gets as bad as that. Still, it seems that in every generation... We get little examples of what life would be like were it not for the restraining power of God. And what might be some examples of what life could be like for everybody if God did not act to restrain evil? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, again, I'm focused more on God's assessment of, of humankind in Genesis, Genesis 5, right? Idi Amin, Paul Pot, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin. I mean, in every generation, it seems in the providence of God that he gives us little reminders of what life would be like for everybody were it not for the promise that God made with the whole of humankind and the whole of creation that he would never again allow sin and evil to proliferate to the extent that the kind of judgment that was warranted in the days of Noah would be, would be warranted again. Now, again, it, it, it's not to suggest that sure, um, you, you know, pe people will ask sometimes, or, or they'll just sort of make the observation that they know a lot of non-Christians who are a lot nicer than a lot of Christians they know. 
Well, to what do you attribute that? Right? I mean, to what do you attribute that? I, I, I think, I mean, don't, we, we know the scriptures well enough, don't we, to know that we don't attribute that to an intrinsic or innate goodness in the heart of that particular person. There has to be something else that's operative. And I would suggest that the thing that is operative is this, this idea of God's restraining influence with respect uh, to humankind. He's made this promise. He's given us a sign that he'll not allow evil to proliferate to this extent. And he exerts his restraining power to keep things from coming as bad as they otherwise could become. So, and um, if if you want to read, um, actually, I'll mention a couple of a couple of things to you if you if you have any interest. But if you want to read a, a really really helpful twenty or thirty pages on this, um, it, it's it's in. Uh, the book Biblical Theology by Gerhardus Voss. He has a chapter on each of the, if you will, chapters in the unfolding story of redemptive history. And he has a chapter in which he discusses the period between the fall through the end of the flood and what the significance of that particular portion of Scripture is. And, and his argument is that what God is showing us in those chapters uh, from uh, from chapter 4 through the end of chapter 9. He is reminding us, he is showing us what life would be like were it not for God exerting his restraining influence to keep evil from proliferating to the extent that it otherwise would. So when you see the rainbow, don't just look at something that's pretty. Don't just look at something that says, I'm thankful that the flood is not going to come again. Be thankful that God is restraining, exerting his power to keep things from becoming as bad as the otherwise would be. So that's a significant event. And the Tower of Babel, this story in Genesis 11, um, is another significant uh, story in this, uh, in this period between the fall um, and the promise made uh, to Abraham. Uh, Genesis chapter 11 um, great, uh, great little passage. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And this, this is in um, what is, if memory serves me correctly, this, the, the land of Shinar is in the region of um, uh, Iraq, Iran, Mesop- what was Mesopotamia, you know, that whole area of Babylon and, and Assyria and all of that stuff. Um, moving to the east, they come to this place, the, the, to this plain, and they say to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now that's pretty arresting, isn't it? Let's build a tower to the heavens. What's what's being 
expressed in that. Arrogance. Yeah. Self-exaltation. Let, let's exalt ourselves. Let's, let's enthrone ourselves in the heavens. Now, whose region is, is properly the heavenly region? The region of the gods, right? So, so what are people doing? They're saying, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of plain as the nose on your face, right? Although the nose on my face isn't so plain, which if you think about this morning, I really do need somebody outside my own head to help me assess myself because I can't really see myself. Okay, so let us make a name for ourselves lest we disperse. Let's build a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, I love this fifth verse. I love the language of this fifth verse. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Right? Now, you, you get what's going on here, right? This is the God of heaven and earth, right? This is the God of Genesis 1, uh, the God who speaks everything to ex- into existence by his creative word. This is the God who is transcendent over everything, omnipotent, possessing all power, omnipresent, present everywhere, omniscienti, omniscient, possessing all knowledge. What do you think's going on in verse 5? Does God come down because he's not quite sure what it is that's going on in the plain of Shinar? No, it's, it isn't, isn't it right? It's tongue-in-cheek language. It's the great God of heaven and earth coming down from his lofty throne to take a peek at this puny little thing that these human beings are seeking to erect. Right? You stand, did, before the, the 9-11 attack, did you, anybody ever been to the World Trade Center? I mean, you were there, right? I mean, you get up on top of that thing and you feel like you're way, way, way up in the air. Do you know how tall that thing was? 1,100 feet? Something like that? How many yards is that? Fewer than 400? Do you know what that is for Tiger Woods? That's a five wood and a pitching wedge if you lay it horizontally. It looks so big when you're standing at the base of it. And when you put it on its side, it's a five wood and a pitching wedge. It is next to nothing. And God comes down in that sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of laughable. God comes down to take a look at this puny little thing that these human beings have erected in an attempt to reach the loftiness, the transcendent glory of the God of heaven and earth, right? So the Lord comes down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they will propose to do will now be impossible for them. Not, not that any of it is going to be that big a deal in one sense, right? But it can certainly have far-reaching consequences at this horizontal level, right? Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
Again, it's another act of judgment, right? It, it is God acting in judgment um, upon, against and upon, the arrogance of human beings. But isn't it also, just as was true of the flood, isn't it also an act of preservation? It is God acting, yes, in judgment, but acting in such a way as to keep in keeping with the covenant that he made with the creation in Genesis 9, acting in such a way as to keep the evil intentions of of arrogant people from proliferating. So it's at one and the same time. It's, It's an act of judgment, but it's also an act of preservation or an act of grace or an act of mercy. Um for the benefit, ultimately, of the fulfillment of this promise, again, that he's made back in Genesis 3, um, verse 15. The great... That's right, okay, so they would have had... If you'd had a penthouse on the top, Ray, then you'd have had a pressurized penthouse. That's what you're saying. It would have been, would have been pressurized for you or something up there, I guess. I'm, I don't know, but whatever. I guess so. Um, now, here, just, just to make this point, if you look at Acts chapter 2, what do you have at Pentecost? Well, um, this is a, this is really a, a, a I think a, a wonderful connection, um, and and it really is Genesis 11 that provides um, the background for our understanding of what happens at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, right? Divided tongues, divided tongues. That's a kind of a significant thing. What did God do at Genesis 11? He divided speech, right? But look at what happens because of the outpouring of the Spirit. Divided tongues of fire appeared to, appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then you get this list of different people groups. And then in verse 11, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what do you have in Acts chapter 2? Well, you still have tongues that are divided, but they're hearing a single message. They're hearing a single story. They're hearing the story of the mighty works of God. And what's the effect of that? This is a beautiful thing, folks. What is the effect of people of different nations, races, tribes, tongues, different language groups hearing this one message? The effect is 
the reunion of diversified peoples. Right? And, and the, the, the greatest example of that in the day was the wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile being torn down by the gospel so that out of the two, this is Ephesians chapter 2, out of the two, God is making one new man. He's creating one people. So what does Pentecost do? Pentecost, the effect of Pentecost, is to reverse the effect of the division of the languages in Genesis chapter 11. And what is it that creates that reunion, that restoration? It's the gospel. It's the beauty of one gospel for every race, uh, nation, tribe, and tongue. Okay, so... The flood, Babel, both acts of judgment, but I think we're to understand in each case that in each case, uh, these are actually acts of preservation. And by these acts of preservation, um, God is able, if you will, to maintain faithfulness to the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15. And this, this, this is the seminal promise. That's what we keep saying. Genesis 3.15, the serpent crusher is going to come. It's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's going to eradicate evil from the realm. It's going to make everything right. That's the seminal promise out of which everything else blossoms across the whole of the Old Testament. Okay? And these two acts um, function to preserve the hope that is attached to that original promise. Okay? All right. Now, Genesis 12 um, we, we come to the promise made to Abraham. And uh, if you'll just look at the next page of your notes, and, and we, can, we can look just real, real, this is where, this is where we really start to sprint and, and begin to run out of breath, probably. Um, I, I, I think it's really helpful the way... Um, Vaughn Roberts um, sort of um, sort of portrays what goes on beginning in Genesis 12, and, and he's got another little chart on page 60, okay, and that little chart reflects these motifs, these five motifs: ruler, rule, place, people, and prosperity, and how those motifs actually um, unfold. You, you see them unfolding through the books of the Old Testament, the historical books of the Old Testament. So, um, you, you begin with the promise made to Abraham, and then from Genesis 12, verse 1, through Exodus 18, God begins the business of building a people. Okay, Look at the promise in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And then if you jump down to verse 7 of Genesis 12, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Okay? So there's a promise in Genesis 12 of people, and there's a promise in Genesis 12 of a land. Okay, The word blessing shows up all over the place. And what does that have to do with? Well, it has to do with God's intent to prosper 
to prosper Abraham. Uh, blessing him uh, is ensuring that he will fulfill the purpose for which he has been created. And he's been created, he's been called, he's been set apart to be the father of a nation so that that nation can occupy the land. So beginning in Genesis 12 and then working through Exodus uh, into Exodus, you see God building a people. Abraham becomes the father of Isaac. Isaac becomes the father of Jacob. Jacob becomes the father of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you'll jump ahead to uh, Exodus chapter 1, um, we read this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, meaning the land of Egypt. The number uh, 70 is a significant number, right? I think, I think I'm good enough at math to know that 7 times 10 equals 70, and you know that 7 and 10 are significant numbers, numbers that refer to completeness, 7 days of creation, wholeness, 10, right? So 70 is a literal number. But it's also, it's also a symbolic number because those 70 who came from Canaan down into Egypt are representative of this whole people that would emerge over subsequent generations so that in verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, again, language from Genesis 1, Genesis 9, so that the land was filled with them. So you continue to read through um, through Exodus um, 18, and you and you you know read more of the story of God building uh, building a people. Genesis 19 through uh, the end of Leviticus. Let's look at um, Genesis 19, or I'm sorry, Exodus 19. Um, this is where uh, where God, uh, having delivered the people, brings them to Mount Sinai. Um, and in verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And also, and may also believe you forever. And then you drop down to uh, to Exodus chapter 20, and you get uh, the Ten Commandments, the first iteration of the Ten Commandments, uh, which are the, the the basis of God's law word for the nation. Everything else that God says and commands sort of grows out of these these Ten Commandments. Um, and so Genesis 19 through Leviticus, God is establishing his rule. He's giving his law word. He is the king. He's the ruler. He's giving to his people 
this um, this this law to govern their lives. And I always always think it's important to point out as we think about the law that um, that God acts as a redeemer and deliverer before He acts as a lawgiver in Israel's experience. Right. So law is given. Not so that people may have a relationship with God. Law is given because people are in relationship with God. I think it's a very important point. I think we very often think, and this is the, this is the mistake that the Pharisees tended to make, uh, tend, to, tend to draw this wrong conclusion that, that law is the thing that I need to do either to get me into relationship with God or to keep me in relationship with God. But it is God who gets me into relationship with God. It's God who brings me to Mount Sinai, who redeems me from bondage and brings me to himself. And then gives me his law word to regulate my life so that I might know life and know his blessing rather than experience the consequence that results from rejecting his law word. Same thing happened in the creation. When God created, he created the man and the woman, he placed them in the garden, and then he gave them a word to regulate their lives, to govern their lives. So whether in the creation or in this case, in the, in, in the case of Israel, um, God having redeemed his people brings them to himself and gives them his law word, his rule, to govern their lives so that they might really know life. And if you look at Leviticus 26... Um, the passage is, yeah, we, we can read it. Um, Leviticus 26, verses 1 through 13. You, 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 you get this, this sort of weaving together of God's rule, his law word, and God promising prosperity and blessing when his law word is kept. You shall not make, this verse, verse 1 of Leviticus 26, you shall not make for yourselves uh, idols or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of grape harvest. And the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land. Shalom, right? That's the Hebrew idea. Shalom. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. Man, doesn't this sound great? Golly, fruitfulness, one, you know, one fruitful season just kind of bumps into the next fruitful season. And then after the next fruitful season, you plant and pretty soon, bingo, there you are again. You're, you're having to harvest because there's more produce and more fruitfulness. And the idea of being at peace and not being afraid. Wow, what a beautiful thing. I'll remove the harmful beasts from the land. By the way, in Mark's gospel, this is interesting. In Mark's gospel, the first chapter in the temptation, after Jesus has successfully passed the test, Mark makes the, makes the observation that Jesus was with the beasts. How come? 
I think it's a picture of restoration. The beasts are no longer a threat. Where the king is, where the king of peace is, the beasts are no longer a threat. It's beautiful, right? So I'll remove the beasts from your land. The sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store, long kept. What does that mean? Nothing rots. Nothing rots. You shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I'll make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I love how God brings that passage to a conclusion by reminding these folks that he is the God who redeemed and delivered them in the first place. And now he's promising to prosper them. If only they would hear and keep his word. Right. So God is building a people. God is establishing his rule. God is promising prosperity. And then you come to Numbers and Joshua. Um, and God is securing the place. Right. The conquest of the land can just. You know, you know the story. I mean, you know Joshua's story, that Joshua uh, becomes the one uh, to lead the people into the land that God has promised to give them. And they begin the conquest by crossing the Jordan River, um, taking Jericho. Then they have that kerfuffle, that, that mess up at Ai. And, and, you know, they're disobedient and stupid and, you know, predictably. But, he, but God continues um, to to secure the land, the place for his people. Uh, and then from Judges to Chronicles, um, uh, focusing on 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, it's a real important passage, but Judges through the Chronicles, what is God doing? He's securing a ruler for his people. He's, he's giving them a king. He's showing them that they need a king. The mistake that they make, if you read 1 Samuel 8, is what? They want a king like the nations around them. They want a king like the nations around them. Um, And so God gives them a king like the kings of the nations. And who's that king? Saul. And he comes to no good, and that whole deal comes to no good. And so then God gives them David. And how does that work out for him? Eh, kind of so-so. And then he gives them Solomon. And how does that work out for him? Oh, boy. Not so good. Not so good. You look at, you look at 1 Kings 4, and you see, uh, you see the, the kind of the apex, the, the pinnacle of the life of Israel, uh, where all of Israel is at peace and they're enjoying prosperity in their land and they're more numerous than the sand and the seashore and Solomon is filled with wisdom, so he's ruling the people in wisdom. It all looks really, really great. But from that point forward, <coughs> so what is God doing then across the rest of Old Testament history? He's showing the people that they need a different kind of king. They need a better king. But... You see, again, in the life of Israel, 
you see these motifs uh, sort of being woven together to give us a picture of what the kingdom is intended to look like. God, God the king ruling his people, ruling them through his law word in a place, ruling his people and his people enjoying prosperity. That's the kind of the basic uh, thing that you see as we, as we make our way through um, the Old Testament. Okay. Now, we're at the end of Chronicles. Aren't you glad? Okay. We've got, we've got a couple of minutes. Um, anybody want to ask a question about this or um, anything we've talked about so far? We're blowing and going. Okay. We'll continue talking about this um, this next week. This this um, the idea of Israel as um, as the kingdom expressed in a, in a partial sort of way, or or as a picture of the kingdom in its consummate form. Okay, let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for um, thank you for your purpose. Thank you that you're working out your purpose. Thank you that you make promises and that making promises you keep them and you do what has to be done uh, in order to ensure that your promises will in fact be fulfilled. Um, thank you that at the end of this um, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the fulfillment um, of all of these promises um, and who has come um, to begin this great reversal this great work of restoration. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will come again. And we, we would really like for it to be soon, uh, that you will come again and you will bring um, the final consummate restoration. You will perfect everything so that we, your people, together with you in the presence of the Father, will enjoy uh, the fullness of the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. Thank you for that hope. And be with us as we head into this week. We pray in your name. Amen.